Well, we continue on in Ezekiel, and uh, it is, uh, you know, an exciting time, and, and I continue to have um, higher expectations of what we will achieve than the reality that I know that we're going to accomplish, but that's okay. It's always good to, uh, you know, have a big target out there to reach for, and uh, Lord willing, we'll have plenty of time to continue, so uh, we'll dive in this evening into Ezekiel chapter 10 and uh, understand a bit more about the Lord's hand. We've, we've already seen so much in nine chapters of the 48 that are in this book. Had so much revealed to us. We saw those first three chapters of Ezekiel's call and just the, the unique facets uh, of that call and all that has gone on there and just what an amazing thing it is. To, to recognize the way that the Lord pulled him out and, and took him from the office of priest to prophet. We think then of, of his prophecy where he was to proclaim Jerusalem's fall and yet was told that his very life was on the line, that he was responsible because this was an individualized ministry. It was no longer a corporate ministry as we see with the rest of the major and minor prophets, but now this is his individual responsibility as the watchman to warn each one and if he is faithful to do so, then they will be responsible for their own demise. And if he fails, then their blood will be on his hands. And it moves into this dramatic presentation. Not only dramatic in the sense of amazing, but true drama. Ezekiel not able to speak because God has forbid him from doing so unless he receives a direct prophecy. So chapters 3, 4, and 5 are these incredible prophecies that he is acting out. And then in chapter 6, he is allowed to speak. He receives a word from the Lord. And in chapters 6 and 7, he begins to speak all that he has just been dramatizing Somewhere there's an extra syllable in there, but that's all right. You know what I mean. Um, and doing the drama thing. And, uh, and then at the end of chapter 7, we see a quick return. And, and amidst his prophetic proclamation, he again returns to the drama component as he makes a chain and then brings the extension of God's pronouncement of doom upon them at the end of chapter 7. Then in verses 8 through 11... We saw, or we will see, as we, we've begun to see already, the pollution of the temple and all that has gone on and just the horrors that occurred in chapters 8 and 9, the abominations of Jerusalem. And as God took Ezekiel in a vision to Jerusalem, and as we saw last time, as he lifted him up by his hair, this was not a physical transportation, but as the text showed us, it was he was taken in a vision, and, and this was the, the vision that he saw, he was actually being transported by his hair. Again, he is seeing this, although he is still in his home, he is before the elders of Jerusalem who have come into his home, and then the hand of the Lord comes upon him, as the beginning of chapter 8 told us. And after he sees all of these abominations in the temple, all of the desecrations that go on in the temple, then he sees the vision of the slaughter in chapter 9, where we will see the continuation into our text tonight, where God actually is going to show Ezekiel the destruction of the people in Jerusalem. 
Now, I've titled our message for this evening, The Most Devastating Goodbye Ever. The Most Devastating Goodbye Ever. We all understand the challenges of goodbyes. I think as we get a little older, maybe we get a bit more sentimental. Or when we're at a point where we recognize other members of our family are getting older, we become more sentimental in seeing them. I, I remember as my grandmother in Montana, who I've spoken about so often because she's so dear to my heart, um, you know, as she got older and as I was getting in college and my trips to Montana were less and less frequent, I just, I would just weep. Karen and I um, would leave the ranch and I mean, I'd be bawling for 20 minutes. I mean, we'd be almost to Dylan and, you know, she'd still be making sure I wasn't going to crash the car because I was, you know, really just missing grandma already. And uh, I see that even today, you know, as we were in Idaho recently and saying goodbye to my mom. And, and she's still very vigorous and, you know, her health is excellent. Um, but, you know, we all understand that as we get older, uh, the time on this earth gets shorter. And, uh, and it was difficult for me. Well, this is the most devastating goodbye ever. And there's just no debating it, as we'll see the, the vision that we see as we come into, again, is a continuation of chapters 8 and 9. So you need to remember that. We've just seen the vision by God of the destruction of the people of Jerusalem. That's going to be really pivotal. Now, he's also said that there would be a remnant that is left. So keep those things in mind because they're going to play in to the interpretation of what we're going to see as we start into our text in chapter 10. Let's look at the first couple verses here in Ezekiel chapter 10. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance, resembling a throne, appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with the coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. So what's going on here? We have the introduction, or really, if we will, continuation of the vision of Ezekiel that he's been transported into. We understand in this that there is a a continuation of what has previously gone on. If we went back and we looked at chapter 9 and verse 2, we would see in 9-2 that the previous vision were these six men. These six men who came in, these executioners who came in with shattering weapons in their hands. Axes, maces, and swords. And then there was another along with the sixth, a seventh, who was dressed in linen. And if you were here with us, you remember that we identified as a function of the linen and the other parameters of the text, this one as the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, as the one who was in linen. We'll see that further confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt in our text tonight. So this is what we're moving in with as we begin this continuation of the previous section. When we see the fire that is proclaimed for us and is being discussed here, we're reminded of the wrath of God. In Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 12, 
it's spoken to us and described how the fire around the altar is that which is a reminder of God's wrath. And we should know that, should we not? For what, in fact, was the use of the fire on the altar in the temple or in the tabernacle, for that matter? It was for sacrifices, was it not? It was for the burnt offerings, a reminder of the wrath of God, a reminder of sin, a reminder that we need to come before a thrice holy God and bring our offerings, and that there was a continual need in the Old Testament system of which they are under to bring this offering. And yet there was in that, even as we know from Hebrews, never a full forgiveness of sin. There was always that reminder of sin, for as soon as the offering was made, and those who were sanctified through that offering received that pardon and that forgiveness, that atonement, it was but for a moment because again they would sin and again they were guilty and that guilt was continued and incurred throughout the next year until the next day of atonement. Short of the particular individual sins which they were aware of and for which they brought atonement. But never was it propitiation, as we have discussed. And so the fire was always had an element of wrath to it. That's what we saw in Isaiah 6 as well, did we not? As, as the prophet goes before the temple of the Lord, you know, in the day that King Uzziah died. And, and we see the, the throne of God's robe filling the temple. And, and the seraphim, which are standing on both sides, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah recognizes that he is in the presence of God. He says, Whoa, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips amidst an unclean people. I have no chance here before this holy God in his presence. And yet, the seraphim flies between the altar of the Lord, identical picture that we're going to see in a bit, and he takes a coal from the altar and he cleanses his lips. Can you imagine what Isaiah was thinking, understanding this concept that the fire of God is for the wrath of God? Is it, a, it is a representation. And now one has gone to the very altar of God, to the throne of God, and pulled a coal and is bringing it towards him. I'm sure the second before that thing is touching his lip, he's going, three, two, one, it's over. But no, in God's grace, he cleanses his unclean lips as we too need our unclean lips cleansed. So the fire here is the reminder of the wrath of God. And of course, as we've stated repeatedly, continues to seem to rise up as a theme in our preaching, whether it be Sunday morning or night or Wednesday from Hebrews 12, 29, that our God is a consuming fire. And the wrath of God is ever before us in this continuation. As we moved through verse 2, we see he spoke to this man clothed in linen. Again, this is the same one from chapter 9 that we saw. And he said, enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coal of, coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight the confirmation that this one enters into the very throne of God and to the altar shows 
who he is. It is a revelation to us that this also is one who could only be the pre-incarnate Christ who is coming before God. And we know as well, because we have just been described, that this one is going underneath the very throne of God. And then he is to bring the Lord's judgment. As he brought the judgment, as he went and and went out amongst the city and marked those who knew the Lord, as we saw last time in chapter 9, now we see him going out again, those now removed who were marked and who were executed. As the end of chapter uh, 9 and verse 11 told us where it said, Then behold the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. So as Isaiah had cried out to God, Lord, are you going to destroy everyone? And God tells him that no, I will leave a remnant Then we see the man with the writing case. We see the angel of the Lord come back and report to God and say, I have done what you have called me to do. It is finished and the wicked have been destroyed. So this man comes again now with yet more judgment. So keep in mind that context of the judgment that is going on. When we understand this man and that he is coming before the Lord, we we recognize and are reminded of the glory of the Lord, which he is reflecting and who he is. In fact, if we were to go back to the book of Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, we see the first occurrence of the glory of the Lord coming and filling the tabernacle. And in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, we read, and, oh, that's 39. Exodus 40, and verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This man in linen is the one connected with the Lord. He is the one who is the very glory of the Lord. We saw the same thing happen in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 8 to 10. And in 1 Kings chapter 8 and uh, verses 8 to 10, or, or 10 to 12 rather, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the clouds filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this one who is coming is bringing the glory of the Lord and is entering into the very presence of God. Verse 3 shows us again this connection of, of the man with the Lord as the cherubim is standing on the right of the temple when the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. So this man comes and he is entering into the temple. He is entering into the Holy of Holies. The only man who could enter the Holy of Holies is the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. All others would be destroyed. So this confirms to us this whole component of God's glory. The cherubim, notice, are on the right side. This is an interesting location. Um, just from a point of, of engineering, you know, got to pick up this little nuance. 
the right side of the temple would be the south side. We don't see a lot of emphasis on the south side of the temple. Why is he here? It's because of what is represented on the south side. The south side of the temple faces the city of David. It is where the king's house is. It also faces the court uh, or the portico of Solomon. It is the largest space wherein people would gather before the tabernacle. So here we have the, the throne of God, the cherubim, the power source, as we're going to see and have seen of God on the south side of the temple because all would recognize what is going on here. The very presence of God is here outside the temple and visible to us. Only it is just a component of it. It is just the engine, if you will, of God's chariot as has been revealed. In verse 4, we see the glory of the Lord moving out. Let's take a look at verses 3 through 5. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And the cloud filled the inner court then the glory of the lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the lord moreover the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court like the voice of god almighty when he speaks So as we see this man who is reflecting the glory of the Lord, who is coming forward, we see the glory of the Lord that goes up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The glory of the Lord, which had filled the temple, had filled the tabernacle, is now moving. It goes up from above the cherubim. Keep in mind, the glory of the Lord came to Ezekiel in the vision. And in that vision, the glory of the Lord was upon the throne, upon the cherubim, upon the wheels within the wheels. So there is a whole structure, a whole divine structure that is there. Well, now the glory which is atop the cherubim, atop the throne, and the wheels within the wheels now moves. It went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. Think about the construction of the temple. There are two rooms. There is the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, where alone is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the golden cherubim that are on it. It is there that God meets with the priest once a year. It is there that God's glory dwells. Then there is the holy place that has the the candles, that has the candelabras, that has the table of the showbread, that has the bronze altar or the golden altar for the incense, and that has the table with the showbread. Here now is the glory of God moving from the Holy of Holies through the holy place and to the entrance to the threshold, the doorway of the temple. And that glory is blowing through all of the inner temple where prior it has always been restrained behind the veil, that which was rent when Christ died. But it has always been restrained behind that veil. It is now filling the holy place as well as the holy of holies. And according to verse 4, it is shining out. It fills with the brightness of the glory of the Lord out into the court. That is the court of the priests, which was immediately at the entry to the tabernacle. So now God's glory is moving. We saw it initially start to raise back in chapter 9 and verse 3. 
And now it is moving up to a new location. It has moved away from the mercy seat. And it has moved now to a place proximal to the front of the temple. And now we see the the judgment that is evidenced from the coals that's coming forward. And, and that these are, these are the ones that are to be scattered over the city. Notice in verse 5, the wings of the cherubim are heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Now, I think we need a little perspective here on wings and sound. Uh, I don't know, uh, I know a bunch of you are hunters, I don't know how many of you bird hunt, um, but I've got to imagine with all of the timber around here, that if you're doing any hunting of birds in the timber, any duck hunting that you're not in a boat, or any game bird hunting, that as you're moving along, kind of waiting for the birds, and then most assuredly you get by one, and as soon as you get by, it flushes right behind you. And you hear that... Right behind you, you jump, twist around, you're trying to get a shot off. Or at least that happens to me all the time in Idaho. I don't know if the Lord just is, I'm kind of that uh, sense of humor for him. You know, whenever I go out hunting, he's like, here he goes again, this is going to be good. Um, but, so we, we understand what that sound can be like and the, and the stunningness of it. But now keep in mind how far away you would be if you heard that, and how much less it would be if, if that was going on. If Tom and I are hunting, and we're this far apart, and the bird flushes right behind him, and he jumps, although I get a good laugh, it's not that loud to me, because we're 20 feet away. And, and, you know, if it's as far as Jeff, and Jeff and I are this far apart, and we're hunting, and it flies up behind him, I'm barely going to hear it. But what does it say about the sound of the wings? The wings here are so loud that they fill the court with the brightness of the glory of the Lord and that the outer court is like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. How big is the voice of God? I mean, go, go back and read Exodus 19 and 20. You know, when God is speaking, those people are just crushed in fear. And I have no doubt that we would be too. That's, that is how powerful of a sound these wings are making. The outer court is several hundred feet away. So it's as if we're almost to the gym from here. You know what a, a 454 sounds like when it's blown out and it's got dual carbs and, and, and it's running a little nitrogen mixed with the gas? And, and just... Just idling, you just feel a... Well, that is the sound on steroids that they are hearing of these wings. Only it is just moving at light speed. And there is this vibration. And how could there not be? This is the power source of the Holy Spirit of God that is there. And, and, and if you are anywhere around, you're like, Brother... It's coming, and it is not going to be pretty, and we are not getting away. And that is, that, is the, that is the impact that is going on at this point with this initiated departure as the beginning of the glory of the Lord begins to move. In verses 6 to 9, the man takes the fire from the altar. He comes in verse 6, and he's commanded 
to, to take the fire. And so he goes in and he stands beside the wheel. As he goes in, we're not told that he actually distributed the fire across the city. We are told back in verse 2 that he is to scatter them over the city. But we know clearly this is for judgment. What does this bring to our mind when we consider this picture of judgment? I'm reminded of, of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. I find it as one of the most disturbing and difficult passages in the text of Scripture. In Genesis 19, the two angels of the Lord go to Lot and to his family to warn him after Abraham has requested that if there are but five righteous, that he would save them. And so the angels of the Lord, not the angels, but two angels of the Lord, come to Lot and to his family, and, the, and they come into the center of the city, and Lot sees them, and he brings them into the home, and the men of the city see them, and they come pounding on the door, wanting to have sexual relations with the angels. That in and of itself is horrific. But why is God going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of this kind of action. Because of the radical immorality and the homosexuality that is going forward. But that is not the part that disturbs me. It's that as Lot prepares to put his daughters outside so the men can have their way with them, that really is a great move. And that reminds me of something that sure ought not be done. But the angels strike the men with blindness. And even in their blindness, they are groping for the door to still have opportunity to pursue their fleshly lusts and desires. How bad is the perversion of sin in the way that it affects men's hearts and minds that even being struck blind, I'm thinking if I'm struck blind, I'm pretty much going to be focused on not seeing anymore. Not them. Not them. They're all about getting inside the door. And in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 19 and in verses, uh, uh, verse 24, we see what happened. Genesis 19 and 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 23, we get a little bit more extensive description. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 23. And in that text, in Deuteronomy 29 and 23, we see all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. There is nothing growing there. The results of their iniquity, the results of their radical immorality and homosexuality that were so far exercised that even in their blindness they would not see but only desired that lust, bring about this kind of judgment. This is the fire from the throne of God that we are brought face to face with as the man in linen, as the angel of the Lord goes inside, goes between the wheels and returns the fire. We're going to see more on Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel. It's going to become somewhat of a frequent reference for us. 
Well, the fire is to destroy Jerusalem. And although we're not told that it happens, if we were to go and look at 2 Kings and, uh, and consider that destruction in 2 Kings 25 and verse 9, we would see that this is exactly what occurred. 2 Kings 25 and verse 9, we see the destruction that is brought forth. And it says there, He burned the houses of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house, he burned with fire. So that which God said would happen is coming and will happen. In verses 9 to 17, we see a reflection of chapter 1, and we see a description of the appearance of the wheels and the cherubim. Wheels beside each cherub. And we see them that they're gleaming like Tarshish, like the stones of Tarshish in verse 9. That's, that's a blue stone. It's a, it's a barrel, if you will, and, and barrel is another good translation of this Hebrew word. So it is a bright, gleaming blue stone. You know, I remember when we first built our home in Idaho, and I'd been designing this thing for way, way, way too long and, and had more ideas than I had money by far. Um, I wanted to put this blue granite in it that was... Uh, uh, it, it was, what color did we call that? Cobalt blue, yeah. It was kind of uh, uh, somewhere just a almost Richard shirt color, maybe even just a, a little brighter in its intensity. And we found some. We found some stone that was this cobalt blue. We had decided we were going to have appliances to match, you know, the mix master and everything. It, it was an absurd amount of money, and, and we knew not to do that. But it was that brilliant barrel and that's what the appearance is that they are seeing as they look at these wheels within wheels. So not only are they amazing just in their makeup, but in their color as well. We see in verse 10 that there are wheels within wheels. And in verse 11, they are moving simultaneously. And as we've seen before, there are eyes round about in them. Let me read for you another text where we see eyes round about. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4, in verses 6 and 8. You know, I've shared with you about the Bible reading program. I was going to bring copies of it and forgot. Imagine that, me forgetting. But in, in Revelation 4, I don't know how many times I've read this text. I love Revelation. I've taken classes in Revelation. I've I, I probably read it um, 10 to 15 times in the last two years. Never saw this before. Revelation 4 and verse 6. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. And then this, full of eyes in front and behind. Down to verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Incredible to recognize that the all-seeing God is surrounded by creatures and every element of them are also all-seeing. Eyes all around about in them as also in the cherub that we're brought face to face with and in the wheels within the wheels. It's interesting in verse 13 
uh, which is, is also repeated in verse 2, that it says, the wheels were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels. This is an incredibly intricate Hebrew sentence. It's the only place it's used, whirling wheels. Those two words are not used elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures. And the word wheels that's repeated here twice, it's not the same word. It's the word wheels that he begins with, the wheels were called. That is the same phrase that he uses throughout the book when he's talking about these wheels within wheels. But the whirling wheels are really, that would be translated, although the meaning kind of escapes us, so they've gone with this in most translations. It would be the the whirlwind in the ears. It is, it, it is this manifestation of not just wheels, but of the sound of wheels and, and the ears that are perceiving that. And it harkens us back to what we were just talking about, back from the sound of the wings of God. And so he is just emphasizing here in this one beautiful sentence the incredible sound that's going on. In verse 14, he shows us the faces on the cherubim. Some commentators have noted all of a sudden the face of the ox that we see from chapter 1 is changed. Now it's a cherubim. And they've said, oh, maybe Ezekiel didn't know what he was looking at. Or, you know, the liberals start to say, well, you know, this must be someone else. This must be uh, something that was added later in the text. Or this is some textual corruption that's gone on. That's a big word that Textual commentators like to use textual corruption. But that's not it at all. I love Charles Feinberg. He says, couldn't it just be because we have a very specific reference that Ezekiel is placed in that he is looking at only one side of the four cherubim? So he's not seeing one of the faces, rather referencing them. And it's interesting that the word the cherubim is the only one with the definite article the which gives sustenance and support to that translation. That the reason it's not ox here is because he's not seeing the side of the cherubim that has the face of the ox. It's backwards to him. Because all four of them, as you remember, have faces on four sides. So I think that's an excellent explanation of what's happening here. Verse 15 and 16 are like chapter 1. We see them rising and that these are the same living beings he saw by the river Kibar, confirming for us it is the same glory of the Lord and that as they stand still, the wheels stand still. And when they rise up, the wheels rise up with them for the spirit of the living beings was in them at the end of verse 17. It's telling us that somehow these wheels are set up in an orientation where they're like a gyroscope. They move any direction without any movement in the wheels. So there's no turning of the wheels that goes on. The eyes are fully seeing all from the same angle because they don't need to move in order to move. Now that's one from an engineering perspective I can't help you with. Try as I might, that one just gets me. I, I just, I can't wait until we get to be with the Lord and understand what that all really means. But it is an incredible revelation. Well, this has been the initial departure. And the spirit of the living being here is obviously, again, the Holy Spirit of God that is empowering, that is the, the power source, that which created the heavens and the earth. That which fluttered over the water in Genesis 1-2 and imported all of the energy to bring about everything which we now know. That is the, the engine, that is the power source that is here. And then we get to, from the initiated departure in 
in verses 1 through 17, and we go to our second point, which is the intermediate departure, beginning in verse 18. Look at verses 18 to 22 with me. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Kibar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kibar. Each one went straight ahead. If we hearken back and try to envision the scene of the entry of the glory of the Lord to the tabernacle, or even better yet, to the Solomonic Temple. When all of the offerings were prepared, hundreds of animals, go and read all that Solomon brought for the dedication of the temple. I mean, the bulls and goats and lambs, it, it, was, it was a bloodbath. And the glory of the Lord, as all of these offerings are prepared and upon the altar, as the glory of the Lord came down, it consumed the offerings, and it filled the temple. How amazing would that be? It is no less amazing or glorious as the glory of the Lord departs. Only rather than an awe and fear and rejoicing at what God is doing and being in their midst, it is a fear and crying out at the judgment that is coming as the glory of God is departing from them. So the glory of God has come from above the mercy seat and it is paused at the temple threshold. Now it has moved from the temple threshold and it has placed itself back upon the throne above the cherubim and the wheels at the, at the right side, at the south side of the temple. And now it has moved from that south side to the east gate, to the upper right. That gate is the beautiful gate, or is known as the beautiful gate. It is the main entrance to the court of women and the court of men, which leads to the court of priests and into the temple. Immediately beyond it is the golden gate. There, there is an incredible, nuanced uh, um, survey component to this lineup. If you take a line from... The Mount of Olives, which is where eventually we're going to see the final location of the glory of the Lord. From the Mount of Olives and from the Garden of Gethsemane particularly, down through the Golden Gate, through where the beautiful gate could be. Of course, it's gone because the temple is destroyed. The, beautiful, or the Golden Gate is still visible and walled up in the Old Temple Mount and continued through the center of the temple and onward to the west to Gethsemane, there is a perfect line. Now, if you look at this on the maps in your Bibles, you will see that many will show the temple itself move to the south so that that alignment doesn't appear to exist. What many modern scholars, some dear friends of mine who are at the Ibex Institute in Israel, the Master's University campus there, believe that 
that location on our maps and what's presumed to be the future temple site at the center of the temple mount is awry in its location because it will not fit in its current location with the Al-Aqsa Mosque because the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Golden Dome Mosque, would have to be torn down. We know that the temple will have to be rebuilt and we know that in order for the Antichrist to strike the treaty with Israel that will inaugurate the tribulation, that that temple must go back. To consider how somehow in our political climate, although God can do anything, that the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the second most holy site in all of Islam, is going to be brought down so that the temple could go up without a world war and the destruction of Islam or the majority of the Middle East is inconceivable. However, if, as these men presume, that that alignment from the Mount of Olives and from the Garden through to Gethsemane is correct... The temple will fit today in its full size on top of the Temple Mount alongside of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now that, of course, from a biblical and a, and a Christian perspective is unthinkable that the temple of God would be adjacent to the Islamic Al-Aqsa Mosque. However, geographically it fits and they have evidence that they believe shows also historically that that was the location of the original Temple Mount. And if you've not been to Israel, and if you have not seen the very small cupola and the very unique stone pattern that exists underneath it, which is where most of those scholars believe is the actual center of the Holy of Holies, that location does align perfectly with the alignment I just described to you. So the glory of the Lord at this intermediate departure, rises up over the eastern gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovers above them. In the vision now, most of Jerusalem has been destroyed in chapter 9 by the angels who come with their weapons of warfare. The remnant are all that are left. And now the remnant that are in Jerusalem are seeing the glory of the Lord hovering above the eastern gate. And, and this is a vision that if, if you can't imagine, it, it, there, there's no way to describe for you. Because the beauty and splendor and the majesty that are being portrayed for us here are just incredible. And the departure's fulfillment is something that we know from many texts. We see this from uh, Deuteronomy and Hosea. Um, and it's interesting to understand that Dr. Feinberg, Dr. Charles Feinberg, indicates that the Lord takes time to reluctantly move out of the temple in steps. His first step is to remove from the interior of the mercy seat to above the threshold where he pauses as, that, as chapter 9 and verse 3 shows us. His second step is to be lifted over the temple threshold in chapter 10 and verse 1. Then he moves the cherubim to the south, to the right side in chapter 10.3. And then he mounts upon and sits on the throne in 10.4. And then we see he goes, he moves over the eastern gate in 10.18 and 19. 
And eventually we're going to see him leave the house and leave the temple in chapter 11. And soon the entire temple mount is going to be Ichabod without glory because the glory of the Lord will have departed. And the closing details for us in the last clause, the last sentence of chapter 22 is each one went straight ahead. The plan of God was unswerving. As it was decided, it would not be thwarted. And the glory of the Lord was departing from the temple. It's a horrific consideration to recognize that the glory of God left the chosen people which he had taken through everything, which he had brought out of Egypt and into the promised land and which had again denied him. And so therein he departed not to return until the millennial temple is finally rebuilt. You realize the glory of the Lord never came back in the second temple period with the exiles and with Zerubbabel and the uh, Nehemiah and Ezra's return. But it will one day return. It will be back in the Temple Mount. We will see the glory of the Lord and the reigning King, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne of David in the Millennial Temple. But they missed it. But the point for us is we must not miss it. We must make sure that all that we know do not miss it. Because those that do may well be like those that were destroyed by the destroying angel. And we'll see when we come back next week to chapter 11 that the destruction is far from over. So may God empower us to recognize his continued sign, his continued revelation to us of what he has done and will do that we would be faithful to proclaim, faithful to proclaim to the children in our church, faithful to proclaim to the family members in our lives who we know and love, faithful to proclaim to the man on the street, to the clerk in the grocery store, to the secretary in the office, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that they must receive him to avoid the wrath to come which will be beyond anything that we've yet seen.